I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most. But if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com Hey everyone, just before we start the show, I I wanted to take a second to say a few words about our, our very kind sponsors. 100 Resilient Cities is a part of the Rockefeller Foundation, which which you'll probably know is one of the world's largest charitable endowments. 100 Resilient Cities is is focused on, on helping cities around the world become more resilient to the, the social, physical and economic challenges of the 21st century. They're doing some excellent projects in terms of, you know, environmental sustainability, in terms of economic sustainability, and just in terms of, you know, making life generally better for everyone in cities from Manchester to to Miami, to Melbourne, to Montevideo. You can find out lots more, including reading up on some of those fantastic projects, at their website, which is 100resilientcities.org. Anyway, now on with the show. Okay. Oh yeah, don't know where I'm going or where I... I'd like to leave a little reputation behind me, yeah. I really need to watch Bugs and Malone again. That needs to be our intro. Yeah. <laughs> is this the wrong moment to tell you that I started recording <laughs> Don't that? put... This is a Manhattan-bound B Express train. The next stop is Grand Street. Mind the gap. Hello, I'm John Elledge, and this is Skyline's The City Metric Podcast. If you're a regular listener, you'll know that a few weeks ago we had a guy called Ned on and we kind of messed around in, in Victoria and London, which was lovely. Uh, my mother in particular enjoyed that episode, and I think now Ned is her favourite son. Uh, but one of the one of the people who, who got in contact to say they enjoyed that that episode was dropping some, I think, fairly strong hints about <laughs> maybe talking about a different century. So this week we're going to do the seventeenth century with the historian and author Rebecca Radil. Hello, hello. Thank you, thank you for coming all the way. You've come down from from the north to see us. I've, you? I've, yeah, I travelled from the north and then I went to Southwark and now I'm here. So I've done the rounds today. Southwark was was of course very big in the in the seventeenth century in itself. So you know it's really you're kind of in keeping, I think. Yeah, I think so. Just about. We also we also have an interloper who said that they just really like the seventeenth century. So hello, Helen. It's not my favourite century. My favourite century is of course the eighteenth century, but it's still a good century. I won't have a word said against it, and certainly a really interesting point in terms of uh, architecture, particularly in terms of London and city planning. So okay, Rebecca, first question. 17th century why that's a big question um i can give you the honest answer or the lie no give us both and then we have to guess which one's which okay well the first answer is that 
I'm very interested in the civil wars and um, as a life. Yes. Yeah, so, <laughs> <laughs> so the honest answer is we studied restoration poetry when I was doing my A levels and they are really, really dirty. These You're thinking like the other Rochester and people. Oh yeah, yeah. And it was the first time I think obviously we re- reconstruct these um memories in our minds, but I think for me that was the first time that I'd actually realised fully that people were actually very human in the past as well. Um, right, they yeah. were they're very, very I mean, as a teenager reading such dirty Senor poetry Dildo. like that, I'm you know Yeah, Senor Dildo. There's a one by one of Rochester's friends that if anything is even is almost too filthy. It's about double penetration and it includes the phrase warring task, which oh, task being, yeah, task, sort of yeah, being yeah. a word for penis in the seventeenth century. This is where I spent a lot of my undergraduate English degree doing oh, as well. Oh well brilliant. Yeah. Well, I was like, wow, you. there's like really filthy poetry. I didn't kind of think that anyone... Because you sort of come to it with that post-Victorian idea of history, right? Which is that everyone in the past covered up all their table legs and then and then we got to the 60s and then everyone started having sex quite openly. And then you go, oh, no, 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 no. Actually, it turns out before that, we were very much more... The, the spirit was much more 1960s than 1860s. Yeah. yeah. In the previous 60s. It's that to an extent because we kind of naturally sort of assume the boundaries... Of, of sort of social periods kind of fit in with like you know political periods or the, whereas like it's just the Victorian mores really last well into the 20th century right yeah I guess there's a long 19th century that lasts from what the kind of I guess from 1790 into like to 1950 if you want to kind of put it like that basically until John Profumo gets in trouble really um, yeah. before the and exactly between Lady Chatterley and the Beatles first LP yeah. we're, we're already three centuries off so this is, <laughs> this, is, this, is, this, is this is a great start so I also should have said uh, Rebecca you're the author of a book called 1666 Plague War and Hellfire mm-hmm. yeah so we know we know about the plague and the war where does the hellfire come in well, the Hellfire is the Great Fire of London, but it's also a metaphor because fire in the 17th century had multiple meanings. It wasn't just the physical burning, orangey thing that we, we think of. It could also mean Hellfire because this was obviously a very you know deeply religious society. So people believed that their actions um, and their sins could actually propel them into hell afterwards. So that was an idea that was very much in people's minds. Um, fire resonated in other ways too it was used as a celebratory thing so after I mean I'm pleased you said you know about the war that surprises me the Anglo-Dutch wars not many people oh John knows a lot about the Anglo-Dutch wars I was I was on the civil wars but that's of course that's the wrong I'm like 15 years off aren't I yeah Yeah. you are 50 right that's fine uh, I suppose only yeah, less than a decade. Yeah, so it's like... but it's it's kind of it, it's all related. Time is you know the fire stuff is really interesting because right? the th- big thing that obviously you think of when you think about London and is you think about the Great Fire and you think about the building of St Paul's and stuff afterwards. But I suppose in a social context, the restoration of Charles the Second and his merry like footloose, free and easy, you know, loads of mistresses, all this kind of stuff, not getting an heir, all of that. There must have been a lot of preachers around the place going like, "We are heading for eternal damnation," and then a massive fire starts. They must have gone, "Look, I don't." I told you, I told you about the eternal damnation. Oh, yeah, yeah. And in people's minds as well, there was a group of people called the Fifth Monarchy Men, which may not be out of of place in today's politics, although I don't want to talk about politics. But they believed that the end of the world was coming and that people were living. I mean, this was widespread. It wasn't just um, with them, but they believed that people were actually living in their last age and everybody was going to be judged pretty soon. And actually, there was a pamphlet. Sorry, not a a pamphlet. A... um, Words escape me now, but it, a, a pamphlet that was created and it predicted things that were going to happen in the future um, by a man called John Lilly. And within the imagery are pictures, and this is before 1666, 
of rodents infesting cities, pictures of a fire in a city and also of maritime warfare. And this was, this was created, you know, a decade or so before. So after the great fire, I mean, we're jumping ahead now, but after the great fire, he was called in for questioning because his predictions were too accurate. <laughs> I'm not sure that predicting a rodent plague in a naval battle was really, I mean, he wasn't straying that far into the realms of craziness. Did you set off war with the Dutch? So it's quite difficult to kind of like fiddle that one, isn't it? It's like, so, okay, set the, set the scene for us a little bit. Like what's like before the fire? Mm-hmm. Be- before even the the plague, which I think comes before the fire, what's it? What's it like? What's What's London look like, and how's everyone feeling about? And how many the world? people are in it? Okay, so London at this time is I refer to it as a metropolis because it is actually a couple of cities and some suburbs. So you have the city of London, you have the city of Westminster, and then you have this suburban sprawl that's connecting the two and, and kind of tailing off towards the east as well. So that's physically what London is. And um, in terms of the population size, we don't know for absolutely sure how many people were living in the city. There's a statistician called John Graunt who estimated in 1662, he estimated that there were 460,000 people within the metropolis. Modern estimates have put the figure between 400,000 and 500,000. So it's somewhere around that. This is a city that's always growing. How big is that would that mean in comparison to like the Paris of the day? Like was it a was it a world, you know, was London a massive city in world? It was terms? a massive it was a massive city and it wasn't larger than Paris. I can't recall the exact estimates, but it wasn't larger than Paris at this time. And the next biggest city were cities like Norwich and um, within within England which had 20 odd thousand people living there. Wow, so it's that's not, a big gap. Yeah, like a so factor of 20. Yeah, it, it was it was huge, but Having said that, I mean, when you think about the population in the city now, it was huge, but it wasn't huge in the sense that we would understand. There were communities, people knew each other. There was lots of ways that people linked together and there were traditions and habits that people had that brought them together. Church obviously being the main one. So within your local parish, you would know most of the people by name, probably, if not by face, and you would probably talk to them. So parish community was a big thing and the city is made up of of migrants as ever and people that have come from all around the country from further afield as well just to put out a couple of examples there's a family called the Taswell family that moved to the city in 1660 they've been living on the Isle of Wight they set up as merchants on Bear Street by the custom house um, at the time as well so there's there's lots of lots of movement it's a younger population than the population at large because there were many apprentices coming down into the city it's also a city that's thought to be unhealthy the there's lots of smoke and we think of like the big smog and Victorian London as being this smoky city but actually it was there were complaints about the, the the smokiness of the city because furnaces and things were were inside the walls they were there was no real rationale as to where these things should be located. They just were where they were. And um, many people came to the city and actually, I mean, there's one man called uh, Thomas Elwood who arrived to take up a print, an apprenticeship with John Milton and had to leave after like a year because, well, less than a year, a few months because the air had got to his chest and it made him ill. He had to leave another occasion because he went to prison. But that's one of the notable things when the plague comes, right, is that everyone who can get out of London bails out to their country estate as soon as they possibly can. And I mean, not... Everybody that could. Some there were a significant few that stayed behind. Um, we know Samuel Pepys did. He was out of the city a lot, but came back as well. George Monk, who is this huge seventeenth-century figure, orchestrated the restoration. He remained behind to kind of keep control of of the city as well. There are a couple of members of the Royal Society that stayed behind too. Also, after after the the main part of the Great Plague, so in early sixteen sixty six. 
um, you find little references to people that have stayed behind that you you don't notice in the archive from 1666. So Samuel Pepys was talking to um, one of his friends who who told him that actually throughout the plague they'd still be going to the coffee house by the exchange, and a, a few people had been going to it. So there's yeah, there a lot leave, but significant few remain plus the poor as it just well. makes me think whether or not london during the plague was a bit like it is at christmas and you just think god this could be really so much nicer if london only had like a tenth of the population <laughs> i'd be able to get like the roads would be so clear i wonder i mean obviously they're probably not because they were the plague <laughs> it's possible that this is not quite as good an idea as it sounded in your head before you said it um, i don't think that's entirely wrong though actually i bet there's, someone like peeps was probably like it's brilliant i can get served at the coffee house he like uh, there's a kind of or, I mean, these these things were horrible, but he, he he was awed by them as well. He went to Moorfields to go and see if he could find bodies to look at. He did he did things like this. But then if you it's a very seventeenth century thing, isn't it? It's like it's not you know, yeah. there's no TV hasn't been invented yet. What am I going to do? Let's go and look at some plague victims. See what they whether what they exploded. Yeah, but the, but he did that. But then earlier on in the century, you get people like Ben Johnson who wrote a play called The Alchemist and. That's a satire about plague, plague times. It's a satire about the people that remain behind. And what they do is they they stay in their master's house and they take over and they, they get up to all kinds of nonsense. But the idea that the people that left behind took advantage of a situation, of the situation, is very much there in people's minds. A bit like Private Walker and all the spivs in Dad's army. It's that kind yeah, of like, kind right. of like that. But that's why it would be an interesting thing for, I guess, for artists. And like in the same way we've had this discussion about one is the, one of the few things that uh, is a, resolves inequality is a really great big war, right? And I guess the plague must have had to some extent that kind of, certainly like the Black Death did in the, whenever it was that happened, was that it was just really upended society because, yeah. because actually, you, you know, no one was particularly spared. So I guess that London must have had some of that atmosphere of just people are gone. Some people are never coming back. You know, everything's kind of been upended for this. It's almost this kind of a carnival atmosphere. But you know what I mean? This kind of sense of just everything being up in the air. Yeah, but also severe tragedy. And um, there's there's a, a kind of a level of dark humour that you do get from archival materials. Samuel Pepys is obviously the best source for plague testimony from this time. Um, and there's a, there's hints at that, not from him, because he doesn't tend to do satire in his diary. He's very straightforward and matter of fact. But you get you get hints of that. But equally, there is that despair and the horror of it all and how it's so un, you know unnatural and dehumanising plague. Mm. You, you get that very much as well. I mean, there are stories of people breaking out of houses that were shut up to try and, you know, to give themselves a chance at life because of course if one person if we were i mean there's three of us in this room now if i suddenly started um, coming down with bubonic plague symptoms all three of us would be shutting here here for four weeks so people would not be allowed to leave how much food did people have in their houses that that was a thing that they could do then yeah so there there were plague orders that were brought in um and it's like a sort of plague-based deliveroos yeah (laughs) no i mean obviously these things would have become less organized as the plague worsened but in an ideal world if plague hits hit the city there were plague orders that stipulated that each household would be given were granted two nurses and there would be a watchman outside the house and this is how food and and vital things that they needed would be delivered to the people inside the house there's a really really heartbreaking testimony from a man named Thomas Clark who was quarantined in 1666 and he speaks about how they are quarantined within their house but actually 
he does not have plague but his child does and mm. they have to lock his child in a separate room they're not allowed to go into the space where the child is for fear of getting plague and the it's a, written in a kind of in a poetic way but the way that he described the awfulness of not being able to comfort your own child when they're calling out for your help i mean that's there as well mm. and it's really bleak particularly when you're also looking at you know, the references to all these people dying on parish burial records. I mean, this is very dark stuff. But I'm really interested in it because the thing is, it's always presented when you have in that linear view of history as being like the plague happened and that was bad and then the fire happened and that was bad but also good because it meant that you got to have a much, you know, different layout of the city. It removed all the slums which were really unhealthy. But presumably, I mean, in terms of kind of like a refugee crisis, the fire must have just devastated people. And what When you're talking about this sort of plague orders and sort of making sure there are nurses and so on like who is who is organizing this who are the authorities here so we have this metropolis um the city of london has the jurisdiction for these the parishes within the walls and then a number of out parishes as well so that falls under the um, jurisdiction in an ideal world of the lord mayor then the aldermen but then also the parishes as well it's the parish the the separate parishes that recruit the women that are allocated to be nurses and also allocated to be searchers, it's the parishes that recruit the watchmen, it's the parishes that recruit the people that are going to bury the dead as well. So it's it's um, there's a kind of hierarchy there, but the real kind of nuts and bolts of the organisation comes from the individual parishes. Um, you have two physicians that are mainly in charge of what's going on. One of those physicians is Nathaniel Hodges, and he left... Um, a really marvellous testimony from his time as a plague doctor or a plague physician um, and it describes his daily process of looking after people. Um, so he would go out to people's houses. He would. There's no indication whatsoever of those plague masks. That's not something that is in 17th century England, but he goes... Whoa, 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 whoa. Did people didn't wear the beaky things? No. What? Yeah. So where does that come from? Uh, it, well, it's there is imagery from um, areas in Germany from the um, 16th century and before that. But there's no evidence whatsoever of, unless somebody wants to counter me, but there's no evidence whatsoever of those beaked um, I can't believe the Germans had cool beaky masks and we didn't. But we did still, the the physicians did still cover themselves. They they made sure that there was, because this is... They would have had like nosegays, right? In the sense that lots of people would have They would have breathed things in, um, but they... But this is in this is the time before modern medicine. So medicine rests on the belief of the four humours, on the idea of miasma being the thing that transmits disease, and um, you know you can the air is either bad air or good air. So if you have lots of nice scents, then you're going to be free from from disease potentially. Um, so when he's going into these individual houses, he's putting together these little concoctions, incense and stuff to, to burn. Um, he's seeing to the to the people there as well. But then he also has kind of patients coming to his own house. So he sets up a little kind of um, doctor's practice in, <laughs> in a way and they come to visit him. One person that visits him is a young girl whose family are in quarantine and she's managed to break free from the quarantine and she runs to him and she, sa- she explains that she's got a growth on her arm and he writes in his testimony that he was pleased to tell her that it was actually just a wart. Um, oh, well, that's nice. But we don't hear about her after that point. And um, so, who knows? But there's <laughs> Died another, of melanoma I know, six months later. I know, but mm. there's another there's another arm-related thing. A man believed he had a, a plague-related markings on his arm, so he asked for his arm to be... Um, Chopped off. Chopped off, and he died from the loss of blood. I shouldn't laugh, but he's... <laughs> yeah, so there's, so there's, there's lots of um, things like that. 
Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Okay, so let's, let's move the story on. What starts the fire? Well, it is a fire in a bakehouse on Pudding Lane on Sunday the 2nd of September 1666. I mean, we, we know this from school, don't we? We know that it was a hot summer. We know that London was mainly, although not exclusively, made of wood. We know that there was a wind that was blowing um, towards the west that encouraged the fire. So, um, And that grain is, like wheat is re- weirdly explosive, right? Because of the yeah. way that its structure is. I think this is something that people don't kind of quite get is the fact that it like it can almost like gunpowder I think it can burn grain to grain like it can be very it can be a dangerous thing to store indeed and that's what happened I mean when the fire initially started within his house it quickly went outside to all their stores and their storehouse and, and that made it even more combustible and the the um the street uh, pudding lane was a place that had lots of shops that had combustible goods there so fishmongers and um wine wine places oily things and also along been a great smelling fire initially well maybe i hadn't I'm not really thought about the smell oh actually there are <laughs> records about the smell of the fire yeah but these are related sorry i'm bringing things down to a really dark level but these are related to the people saying that it smelled the smell was of um burning corpses but i guess there was a lot of meat that was burning as well hmm. like the corpses right yeah, yeah. corpse meat um, yeah how quickly did it spread uh, very quickly so it broke out at between one and two in the morning um on sunday and then it spread along Pudding Lane quite rapidly. They weren't able to... They called the watchman, they called um, the Lord Mayor, Bloodworth, who we're all familiar with. Um, he tried to organise for fire engines to be brought down. When I say fire engines, I mean a bucket with a squirt on wheels. Not, yeah. yeah. He tried to organise for these fire engines to be brought down to Pudding Lane to help put out the fire, but they were too... The, the lanes were too narrow for the fire engines to go down and um, some people were pleading with him to pull the houses down he refused i can kind of understand why though to be honest because london had lots of fires before there was no indication that this was going to turn out to be the great fire um, also london property prices like people are going to be so annoyed if you start pulling yeah. down houses so of course yeah. but it is it's really interesting to think about it in the light of other i mean we've got a big fire raging on saddleworth moor at the moment you had a, mm. a horrible fire last year in grenfell and and the and, and not to kind of, it's probably too glib to draw associations between them, but like in the fact of, yes, lack of preparation because you don't think this, this kind of thing is a thing that can happen. And also just l- totally inadequate responses in terms of knowing what the answer to a, containing a fire is, right? This is something that runs all the way through that. And it's amazing that that's still something that we really struggle with now. It's fire is still this incredibly elemental force in reshaping an, our environment. Yeah, it's, I mean, ultimately it is we we can try to contain it but it's it is an it's an uncontrollable thing and i think there there were methods i mean there were tried and tested methods to combat fires during this time and they did work they they would pull down houses and this did happen obviously it's harder to get permission to have a house pulled down when the only people living in that house are the tenants and the landlords are living in some country pile um you know miles and miles away so actually it's buy to let landlords john you'll be yeah. pleased to know with the real it's always buy to let landlords. <laughs> in the great fire of london yeah 
Well, so, so give us some sense of how long did the fire last and how much did it destroy? So the fire lasted for about four... I could give you... I could give a tricky answer here. Okay, so the proper fire, the main fire that we think of, lasted for about four and a half days, although there were reports months later of smoke being emitted from various parts of the ruined city. So, I mean... We could say months, but four four and a half days properly, and it wiped out. No, wiped out's the wrong phrase. It decimated about eighty percent of the city of London, the city of London. And what, the reason I didn't want to say wipe out is because when we look at when we look at great fire imagery, we tend to look at look at maps, and it seems to be this flattened space. But that wasn't the case whatsoever. I think people need to have more in their mind kind of blitz London. It, these were there were skeletons of buildings left behind, and the ruins of St Paul's is a fantastic image that was created in 1673, which shows St Paul's Cathedral as a ruin, and it just it really brings it alive because it's so similar to some of the blitz imagery that we have, photographs that we have. Which resumes its own problem in the sense that if you're left with skeletons that are unstable, no one knows whether or not the best thing to do is go in and rebuild that or to go and it has to be pulled down because it's unsafe. So yeah. presumably there were house collapses for months afterwards. Yeah, there was there were quite a few deaths from, from things like that. But also for weeks, months, the city of London, this burnt out area, was a place that people didn't like particularly to go through because there was lots of crime. So there were reports of burglars and kidnappers um, operating within the ruins they would kidnap somebody rob their goods from them and leave them for dead there were a couple of bodies that were discovered that way um but yeah i mean and also there would be people that would go back because this is a this is a time when it's not necessarily the building that, that you're precious about which of course you are but it's the space so even though somebody's home has been destroyed they still own that space and this is why we get all these issues with these utopian designs of a new london they could never work in reality because no one person owned london it was owned by thousands of people um but people would go back to these burnt out spaces that they owned and kind of erect makeshift tents and um you know homes out of the ruins to try and still operate their businesses and things i want to get onto the grand designs in a second but did many people die from the fire? I had this question today. So I gave a talk today with some um, year 10s um, in, at a school, which is a very exciting experience, but quite <laughs> terrifying too. Um, but they asked, they asked that question. It's a question I, I'm always asked how many people died. Because when we were in school, the classic story is that not many people died. You know, figures are usually around 6, 8, 10, 12 at the most. I think if anyone was to give you an answer, they would be lying. There's no way of giving a definitive answer because we don't know definitively exactly how many people were living in the city there's a comparable fire and um, the great fire of chicago um happened in the 19th century and lots of the story of the great fire of chicago is actually quite quite similar to the great fire of london it happened during autumn time it had been very hot it was a very wooden city um it happened um in a well it was supposed to have happened in a, a woman's um she had a farm at the back of her house. So it's supposed to have happened there. But they, they had better records then in the 19th century and they estimated out of the population that 250 people died from that from the Great Fire of Chicago. The population was kind of similar. Um, I think I would, as a guess, and it is just a guess, but it's a guess rooted in archival research that I've done into um, parish burial records immediately after the fire, that I would probably say the low hundreds because we don't know. I think that's really fascinating. And again, it kind of links to contemporary stuff, which is that it's very hard to get accurate death tolls from fires because 
it's not just now that London or cities are a place in which people move in, they sublet, they have more people in their house than they should do according to regulations, you know, all of that kind of stuff. People are living irregular lives and that for is not captured in the kind of official records or you have to mm. kind of prize it out much more, right? And that's a really interesting point of, yeah, contiguity between 1666 and now and, and something like Grenfell last year. I mean, the other thing we were always told as kids is like the Great Fire put an end to the Great Plague that preceded it. Is that... <clears throat> Is that true or is this another one of those things that turns out to be complete nonsense if you actually look at the evidence? I wouldn't say it's true, no, because the Great Plague was waning off by that point anyway. People were still dying of, of plague. People were dying of plague during the Great Fire. But no, it doesn't It doesn't make sense logically because London wasn't the only city in England and it, it waned off everywhere. Obviously, it was the main one and it had roads going you know, to, to, to other main cities as well. Also, the Great Fire affected predominantly the city of London, the Great Plague had predominantly affected the suburbs surrounding the city. So those ramshackle houses, um, if we are to, you know, if we believe that the Great Plague was bubonic plague given to people by rats, then those ramshackle houses were still there. Um, so no one really knows for sure why why the Great Plague ended. There's lots of theories, um, things to do with trade, things to do with human biology evolving, things to do with plague biology. It's um, I'm not a scientist, so I be fearful of delving into it. But the Great Plague did, sorry, the Great Fire did bring on a, a, a plague of city redesign plans. Oh, yes. It's a nice segue I came up with. <laughs> Stop doing that face. So, so like, all, the, all these plans come forward to, like, well, why don't we just start knocking stuff down and rebuilding? It's, the, like, in the same way that um, Baron Hausmann does in Paris two centuries later, right? There's kind of these grand plans. Do you want to tell us about those a little bit? Yeah, there, some of them I do find hilarious. So it's literally within days of the Great Fire ending, you get... I mean, what one thing you were never short of in Restoration London is somebody with a scientific plan for something. Um, and... You get plans from um, Christopher Wren, there are plans from John Evelyn, there's plans from Hook. Um, and these plans are, are fantastic and you can see them. If you want to Google them, you can have a look. Christopher Wren's is this kind of, I mean, they're all utopian. And here's his, this, it's it's a, a very um, tidy and slick design. John Evelyn's isn't too dissimilar, to be honest. It's it's quite, it's um, they, they are similar to one another. Did any Hooks. of them try for a grid system? That is the kind of classic. Yeah, yeah, they're all they, they are they like all a... have grids. They all have grids. And um, the the one design that we don't know, but was was apparently praised above all all the others by um, the Lord Mayor, was Robert Hooke's design, and um, that's vanished along with his portrait and all of the other things. Um, so we don't have that design. But my favourite one is a design that was, um, and these were all. Um, they weren't asked for, they were just given to the king. Um, but my favourite de- design is a design by a man called Valentine or Valentine Knight. And it's literally just lines across a page. <laughs> like just a load of streets uh, going from one direction to the other. So there were all these designs, but they were impossible. They were impossible dreams. Um, because of land ownership or because of other issues? I mean, is it just literally there are people in the way who the designers had been pretending didn't exist? Is that yeah. the main problem? It's, la- it's land ownership. So after the after the Great Fire, um, a court was established called the Fire Court, um, funnily enough, and that was to negotiate through the various claims from landlords and tenants about home ownership and leases and, um, you know, how long somebody was supposed to be staying in a certain location, how, you know, the dimensions of people's houses as well. So that just gives it 
these these firecut records if you get them out from the library they are two really thick books and that's just a calendar of them these these records are extensive to try and just do away with all of that and design a city from scratch would have been madness because people are on the edge anyway they've lost their livelihoods they are crippled by the the cost of war that's going on they've you know just plagues very very fresh in their mind the last thing that a king whose father had had his head cut off and um, wants to do is antagonize the people anymore by going in and saying you know let's just redesign the capital city it wasn't the king's city it was the city of the lord mayor the alderman the people that were living there as well. These were impossible. And commentators said, um, there's, I forget um, who said this precisely, it might have been Clarendon, but they said that, um, you know, rebuilding the fire won't be as hard as working out all the leases as to who owns, uh, rebuilding after the fire as to working out who owns, you know, the various parts. So it was it was impossible. But laws were brought into place. There were um, rebuilt, the Rebuilding Act came in in 1667, which did change things subtly but not to the extent that Christopher Wren would have expected or hoped. Did, did this whole sort of cataclysm, both both the plague and the war, did it change the sort of the, the politics of the day or the mood? I mean, does it kind of feed into that sort of devil-may-care attitude you get in the sort of later restoration drama, or is that from somewhere completely different? There's, there is a shift, whether it's coincidental or not, is up for discussion but there is there's certainly a shift in attitudes to work towards Charles II he was welcomed in his restoration was relatively easy he was welcomed in as king but then when the plague hit and then the great fire and then the year after that the raid on the medway wasn't he taking great big globs of money off Louis XIV as well how saying that I'm definitely well a Catholic so that he didn't have to keep recalling parliament because they kept trying to make him do stuff he didn't want to do Later, but nobody knew about that. Um, And nobody knew about that for decades and decades Mm. afterwards. But all of that worked. And the fact that he was having mistresses and he was being very... Not the fact that he had mistresses, the fact that he was quite open about the fact he had mistresses. All of that worked to kind of change... It shifted from a honeymoon period to a real like marriage i suppose <laughs> but and that's that's what it moved from i guess they all from. knew that he because he i guess i don't know whether or not i would understanding what infertility was at the time but there must have been some kind of why are you not getting children with you know, it was catherine of braganza wasn't it his queen yeah when you've got all of these mistresses and you're going to leave us to your increasingly catholic brother that we don't want so i imagine that towards the end of his reign began to sour people on him quite a bit it did and obviously there was um, a period called the exclusion tri- uh, crisis where people tried to um bypass James, uh, James the Duke of York as the heir um, and go straight to one of Charles's illegitimate children, the Duke of Monmouth, um, or to, you know, or to, to others. But what, but it wasn't so much of a pressing issue as other, I mean, the exclusion crisis was, and when he came out as being a a Catholic, that was, you know, terrible. But when, when, um, but it wasn't so much of a, a pressure as it, as successor problems had been in the past so it's nothing like henry the eighth not having an heir and mm. um, because james actually did have got two several children yeah. and you know they his daughters were healthy they'd been brought up protestants james was only a couple of years younger than his brother there was no indication that you know james would have a long life certainly no indication that he would have a child in his 50s um, with Mary Medina smuggled in on the warming pan. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> certainly no indication of that. So even though it was an issue when James became king later on, people until this 
sun came along, people were just thinking of it as a blip. They were, you know, and then we get Mary they, they and William of Orange afterwards, and... and William of Orange with all his Protestantism, and yeah. We should probably be wrapping up, but I just want to ask one question. Um, there weren't any sewers in 1660s London, right? So how how did that work? Yeah, well, people just tended to throw things out of their window. It is a bit kind of classic, kind of horrible histories, but people did. There was there was a process of sewage. Um, people tended to use the rivers, and they tended to use. There was. <laughs> there's. I mean, in the sense <laughs> that, like, you would just go and have a crap on the shore. No, no, they would take they would take it there afterwards. Oh, like there in was a like okay, yeah. But then there's also the fact that um, the Fleet River was open at this time and. St- dank and there are plans to um cover it over during actually during that period in history or to turn it into a canal as well to kind of make it a bit more well less awful the fleet river on a hot day you can still smell to this day in fact. a lot of fat bugs as i understand yeah. it so so to sum up the thing we were told about how hardly anyone died in the fire that wasn't true but the thing about people literally flinging feces out of the windows that was <laughs> yeah Okay, we'll see you next time. <laughs> You've been listening to Skylines, a podcast from City Metric, the New Statesman City site. It was presented and produced by me, John Ellidge. If you enjoyed the episode, then please do consider leaving us an iTunes review. It really helps other people to discover the show. And, you know, the more people get listening to this show, the sooner I can achieve my real goal of world domination for the medium of trains. Thanks for listening. Goodbye. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.